Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sumin, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Adam Grenner about his book, Improbability, Chance, and the 19th Century Realist Novel. Adam Grenner, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Adam, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in the English Literatures and Creative Communication Program at Victoria University of Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, I'm originally from the United States, and I moved here to New Zealand in 2014. Um, And I teach uh, a broad range of courses here in 19th century American and British literature, um, as well as narrative theory. And more recently, I've been uh, teaching literature related to questions around climate change and ecology and environmental humanities. Great. Um, so how did you come to write uh, Improbability, Chance, and the 19th Century Realist Novel? That's a good question and kind of a complex one. And as a book that kind of focuses on causality and questions of causes and chance and, and randomness, I'm not sure I have a kind of linear answer about how I came to write this book. But really, it started out as um, just being interested in theories of realism and constantly coming up attention in theories and discussions of realism around questions of probability um, and the ways in which, you know, a lot of discuss discourse around realism kind of sees probability or improbability or chance as a problem or a fault or something that needs to be explained away in the 19th century novel. And that those kinds of accounts about uh, realism seemed at odds with just my experience of reading realist novels by everyone from Austin through to Dickens and Hardy, where chance and questions of probability seem central to what they're doing. And and at times, yes, kind of problematic or, you know, inconsistent or seemingly strange or weird. Um, But also in my sense, as I was working with these texts, really important to some of the stuff they were doing. So I kind of just went down the kind of rabbit hole of trying to figure out what does it mean to talk about probability in the context of of narrative, and then more broadly or specifically about what does it mean to talk about probability in the context of realism. And that led me to a series of really interesting questions that were on the one hand about, you know, broad questions of narrative theory dating back to Aristotle, where discussions of probability are kind of central to various you know, frameworks and schools of narrative theory from Aristotle through to the present. And then on the other hand, the kind of history of probability, which undergoes kind of profound and dramatic shift in the 19th century. So the project was really an attempt to kind of bring those two kind of formalist and historicist forms of thinking about realism into contact through, you know, focused studies of how specific authors deploy or use the improbable or chance in their texts. Okay, so what would you say is the main message of your book? Um, I think the main message is that the ways in which we need, you know, the ways in which we talk about questions like probability need to be attentive to how those terms shift and mean different things. And, you know, one of my 
persistent fascinations working on this book was the recognition that when we talk about probability or when we talk about chance, just in our everyday lives, we often don't really know what we're talking about, that there's a set of assumptions built into how we talk about probability and that we're either not aware or we use that in different kind of inconsistent ways. And so, you know, one of the things I sort of wanted to try to do in this book was to sort of track um, what happens to the novel, the 19th century novel, as it sort of engages with and responds to and participates in this transformation of ideas across the 19th century around probability. And I think for me, you know, realism is 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 a form or, or a mode, a literary mode that's most interesting um, to think about in terms of the way in which it is sort of trying to grapple with historical existence rather than a kind of seamless everyday or an appeal to reader's sense of, you know, the ordinary, but rather kind of challenging that or defying that. And, you know, the main argument of the book is that improbability is an instrument or a tool that these writers use to kind of come to grips with the worlds they're presenting and to try and make sense of like, what does a textured experience of a historical reality look like? And, you know, somewhat counterintuitively chance and coincidence and luck and, you know, those sorts of um, mechanisms become a really important tool for a lot of these writers as they try and sort of, on the one hand, create worlds that, you know, appeal in, in some implicit sense to our idea of the real, but on the other hand, kind of complicate that sense by, trying to present a kind of textured experience of a particular historical moment or a particular historical milieu. Now, you emphasize in your book uh, a historical approach, right, just as you said, um, to understand the connection between probability or improbability and the realist novel. Uh, Could you explain that a bit more for us? Sure. So, you know, my approach to realism is kind of grounded in Lukács's sort of broad theories of realism, both in the historic, both in his you know more prominent theory of the novel, but more specifically in his book, the uh, the historical novel, which takes Scott at Walter Scott as the kind of founder of a new kind of realism based around historical, the representation of history or in the historical novel at the outset of the nineteenth century, and so you know that approach to realism is sort of concerned with or focused on the ways in which the novel as a form can come to grips with or explain or help us to understand what it means to live in history or to live at a particular historical moment or to think about the ways in which um, individual experience is shaped by broad abstract historical forces. And so that's obviously a, a specific kind of way of thinking about realism. And there's a lot of different ways of thinking about realism. Um, but for me, you know, the works for the the writers I examine, Scott and Austin and Dickens and Trollope and Hardy, they're all novelists to me that are concerned in some way with, you know, a, a kind of deeply historical understanding of, of what it means to be in the world. And so realism for them is not about, again, the everyday or the ordinary, but rather about a kind of historical existence that we can kind of both map against social changes, historical transformations, material social forces, but then also try and think about and represent and capture how those shape individual experience. Okay, so you actually talk about in the book, uh, Jane Austen, uh, Sir Walter Scott, Charles Dickens, Anthony Trollope, and Thomas Hardy. But you divided your discussion of them into two sections. 
I was wondering if you could uh, tell us more about these two sections. Yeah, so for me, when I was trying to organize and try and make sense of the argument I wanted to make across the whole book, part of it was kind of a historical division where Austin and Scott are typically associated with the sort of romantic period. And then, you know, Dickens, there's a kind of historical leap through to the late 1830s and 40s and beyond with Dickens and Trollope and Hardy. Um, So that was part of the logic. But I also think there's a kind of broader understanding about some of the different questions around probability that preoccupy these novelists. So, you know, one of the things the book is trying to do is to try and make sense of the ways in which questions about probabilistic narratives get internalized into these texts, meaning that, you know, probability is is a kind of thematic concern in, in many of these authors. And so in the first part of the book where I talk, where I focus on Austin and Scott, the, the question I think that I'm trying to work through is um, how do these writers respond to changing ideas of probability at the early 19th century? And so one way of thinking about this is that at the end of the 18th century, uh, what um, historians like Lorraine Dastin call the classical interpretation of probability is still kind of in the foreground or at the forefront of thinking about probability. And in that model of probability, it's a kind of enlightenment model of probability that sort of has its origins in the late 17th century with the kind of probabilistic revolution that sort of sets off uh, and is tied to um, a lot of developments in enlightenment philosophy. But really that's probability in that kind of paradigms about rationality about rationalizing uncertainty, about um, trying to make sense of human, the limits of human knowledge in a, if not deterministic universe, at least a universe where uniform laws apply and that everything's kind of seen as part of a overarching kind of mechanism. Um, And so what Austin and Scott do in their novels and the way they kind of take up probability is to kind of question the kind of rational foundations of that model of probability, meaning that you know, there's two ways of kind of thinking about probability. One is to sort of, and these are kind of, you know, how we still think about probability today. One is um, to focus on the kind of subjective dimensions of probability. In other words, probability is a measure of our subjective beliefs, um, or it's a a account of like how we assess, you know, so it's a kind of epistemological in that sense. The other side of probability is what's called the kind of objective side or or the aleatory side, which is about phenomena in the world, counting, measuring, um, making sense of, you know, how regularities form or or distributed across probabilistic um, distributions. And so in the classical model of probability, those two sides are kind of fused together in the sense that the ideal of rationality kind of creates a bond between, on the one hand, the objective frequencies of the world, and on the other hand, our subjective beliefs about those. And so, you know, we're prone to error, we make mistakes, our subjective accounting of of the phenomena of the world is imperfect. But in that model of probability, the way we think about the subjective dimensions and the way we think about the objective dimensions aren't really incompatible or inconsistent, they're kind of fused together. And so one way of telling the story of the history of probability or at least the way I like to tell it in, in the book, is that over the 19th century, these two sides of probability kind of come apart so that by the start of the 20th century and in, through the 20th century, that these are seen as the subjective philosophy of probability and the objective you know, ways of thinking about probability. Those are kind of seen as 
categorically distinct or even incompatible. And so, you know, one of the things that happens over the course of the 19th century is that um, the rise of statistics is kind of what pulls these apart, where statistics sort of as a mode of making sense of the world focuses on like aggregate regularities and, and, and um, building up large amounts of data to kind of come to terms with what probably, you know, what's probable and what's not. Um, and, and what our beliefs about those are obviously operating in a different realm from counting and measuring. We, we carry around beliefs and our subjective beliefs about what's probable or not are kind of fundamentally distinct from, you know, large scale aggregation of data. So, one of the things that organizes my book is that in the first few chapters on Austin and Scott, I kind of focus on the ways in which the way they interrogate probability in their text kind of shows us the ways in which these two sides of probability are starting to come apart or, or, or that they're interrogating or questioning the rational foundations of, of, of probabilistic thinking. Um, and in the second half of the book, the focus turns more to those questions of scale where Dickens and Trollope and Hardy are all kind of trying to, you know, especially in the case of Dickens, who's trying to come to terms with the Victorian metropolis. He's thinking about, you know, what's the relationship between the individual and the social. And so we can see in their text, how probabilistic thinking or questions of chance and questions of contingency start to become colored or shaped by the questions of scale that, kind of precipitate the, you know, larger transformations in probabilistic thought across the century. Okay, so let's try and delve a bit deeper into um, what you talk about, about the works of these writers. Probably we can begin with uh, Jane Austen. So how can we see probability and improbability play out in Austen's novels? Yeah, so she's the one writer in the in the study as a whole who I think doesn't necessarily rely upon a kind of thorough language of chance in the way that the other writers do, where in the rest of the chapters, chance is kind of foregrounded in all of these texts. Um, but for me, Austin is a writer who the question of probability kind of hangs, you know, over all of her texts. And there's a kind of deep interrogation in all of her novels about um, probability as a set of conventions. And so, you know, anybody who's read, um, Northanger Abbey or, or Persuasion knows that in at the end of those novels, she has some very kind of stark interjections as a writer in terms of kind of drawing attention to the probability of her own text. So, you know, uh, at the end of Northanger Abbey, there's that really great line where, you know, the, the, the marriage between um, Catherine and Henry's theoretically in doubt. And, you know, the narrator says, um, you know, you can tell by the telltale compression of the pages before you that we're hastening towards marriage. And so what probable circumstance could bring this about? And so, you know, for so one way of thinking about narrative probability, it's about, on the one hand, the kind of internal cohesion of a text, the ways in which a plot has a kind of coherence to it, that events follow each other, that there's a kind of probable, probabilistic kind of coherence to the novel. Another way of thinking about narrative probability is that how what is the way in which that novel reflects the the world at large the real world and so probability is kind of a nexus where questions about internal coherence and external fidelity come together and austin to me is a writer who's constantly on the one hand you know giving us this sense of like trying to make things seem coherent seem probabilistic seem that the workings the inner workings of her narrative worlds are 
you know, faithful to the outer workings of the world. But as she does that, she's constant draw, constantly drawing attention to the way in which she's doing it. So there's a kind of self-consciousness for me about how she deals with questions of probability. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people read Austin and kind of on the one hand are oh, deeply aware of how she's um, fulfilling the conventions of the romance plot or the kinds of novels that she's writing, you know, in that tradition. But on the other hand, she's interrogating those conventions at the same time. And I think probability is a site or space where we can see her doing that. And and so in the chapter, I kind of go through a couple of, of different areas of her work. So there's scenes of probabilistic judgment where characters are trying to assess um, you know, what's probable in a certain set of circumstances. Um, you know, so one example I look at is um, when Eleanor Dashwood, um, you know, sees the hair of, of in the ring, um, uh, you know, and, and she's trying to kind of make an assessment. And, and Emma is a novel where characters are constantly trying to sort of assess the probability of certain events. And, and so in these scenes, we can see um, her drawing readers into dramas of probabilistic judgment or probabilistic expectation. And rather than kind of having a rational foundation for that, or, um, you know, her novels constantly show us how our probabilistic assessments of the world are shaped by desire or rationality or, and so I think one way it's useful to kind of explore probability in her texts is the ways in which she's constantly showing us how, you know, probable, probabilistic judgment or probabilistic thinking is not a kind of fully rational process. And that, again, is sort of one way in which we can see her kind of breaking from the tradition of probabilistic thinking within the kind of historical space she's working in. And the other way I kind of think about or, or, or explore the way in which probability is important to her novels is on focusing on what I call very minor characters. And so, you know, one thing, one of the central tensions in probabilistic thinking is about particulars and generals. And so probabilistic, you know, the space of probabilistic thinking is about how do we reconcile the variation of particulars with a kind of general patterns or what happens most of the time. And so one of the things I think that's really interesting about her text is that she's constantly drawing attention in some ways, especially at the end of her novels to how things could be different. And so that yes, Emma ends up with Knightley, um, and, and, and that seems kind of inevitable, but she's also, I think, wanting to draw attention to the kind of contingency of, of what happens in her novels. And so she's kind of breaking from a didactic tradition where, you know, one way of thinking about the novel is that it's supposed to kind of teach us a lesson about the world or, or show us what should happen if in certain circumstances. And I think she's a writer who's attuned to the kind of specificity and particularity and contingency of the world. And one of the ways in which that manifests itself in, in her novels is that she has this pattern and consistent kind of technique of drawing attention at the end of her novels to kind of doubles for the heroines. Um, so in, in Emma, it's Anna, Anna Weston, who's this little girl who's brought into the world uh, in the kind of, I think, second, third to last chapter of the novel. In Emma and Knightley kind of have an extended conversation about whether her life will play out like Emma's. And I think one of the things that Austin's doing in these moments at the end of her novels is like that of what I just sort of said earlier, which is that she's given us the kind of conventional ending that we expect, but then she's including kind of hints and gestures and in and, and ways of calling our attention to the fact that this isn't necessarily how things 
will go or ought to go or will go again. And so, yeah, so I think that, you know, at the level of plot, I think she's, you know, giving us what we would call probable plots or, or plots that fulfill our, our expectations around what's probable in a given set of circumstances. But she's also, yeah, drawing our attention to the fact that she's doing it while she's doing it. So and in that sense, I think there's a kind of skepticism about probability that kind of runs through all of her works that, again, is sort of privileging the particular, the specific, rather than the general. Okay, so uh, you then move on to Walter Scott, and your discussion of Scott focuses on chance and historical and cultural otherness. What is this about? Yeah, so one of the things that really preoccupies Scott throughout all of his work and his criticism and even the kind of extended prefaces and preludes that he writes for many of his novels is, um, you know, he's really concerned with the Gothic and, and the kind of functioning of the Gothic. And so one of the things that I think he's doing with chance is that chance, because it's sort of um, what I call ca- causally ambiguous, right? When we, when we, when something's called chance or something looks like it's chancy, it's a, one way of thinking about that is that there's not an immediate causal explanation. And so, when Scott's working in the space of the Gothic, he's doing so in, in what I, you know, think is maps pretty straightforwardly on to what Todorov calls the fantastic, which is a moment of causal ambiguity, which can be explained in different um, frameworks. And so for Scott, he often, you know, he's depicting moments of historical transformation. He's depicting moments of historical otherness, and he's trying to bridge gaps. And he's writing at a moment, and this is something that comes through um, in a lot of his prefaces and a lot of his criticism on other novelists, where he, he calls it the credit of unbelief, um, meaning that he's writing from a historical moment where you know it's irrational to believe in the superstitious. The supernatural is being explained away. But he's also fascinated with the kind of hold the supernatural has on our imaginations. And those are those that kind of supernatural framework is seen, again, in a kind of historically other sense in the fact that it's sort of displaced on to previous cultures or previous historical moments. And so one of the ways that I think he's using chance is to kind of create these kind of confrontations. And so just to give one example of that. Um, in Waverly, which is what, what I open the chapter with, is it's a short discussion of, um, you know, in that novel, it's depicting a kind of tension between the kind of modern enlightened moment that he's writing from and, and that, you know, has arrived historically in Scotland and the Highland culture, which has disappeared as a result of the kind of historical forces and the historical transformations that the novel depicts. And so there's a lot of moments in that novel around the kind of questions about the supernatural having to do particularly with Fergus MacGyver. And Fergus is a character who's kind of caught between these two worlds. On the one hand, he's the clan chief, you know, he's been, been, he's, he's, he's deeply immersed in that culture, but he's been educated in Europe. Um, And so he kind of sits between, you know, he has a kind of quote unquote rational worldview in some ways, but he's also part of this, Highland culture that has superstitious beliefs. And there's a, and there's a number of moments in the novel where he's kind of poised ambiguously between these two worlds where an Edward, who's his friend can't quite make sense of, you know, why Fergus believes in, in ghosts and spirits and, you know, superstitious 
charms and cures when he, like Edward, has a kind of education that would sort of be able to explain those away. And so what Scott does, and so that that kind of betweenness, I think, is what's really interesting about Scott is that on the one hand, he wants to kind of acknowledge that, you know, maybe ghosts aren't real and that they're a product of superstition, but that's rational, that we're not fully rational either, and that that these kind of beliefs remain with us. And so what he kind of does when he uses chance in a lot of his novels is that he creates these moments that can be explained both rationally and supernaturally. Um, and, he, and rather than kind of privileging one over the other, he kind of leaves that suspended in a way that that Todorov's theory of the fantastic kind of helps us to explain, which is that, you know, in these moments, the, these can be explained, these moments, these events can be explained by kind of rational causes, or they can be explained by a kind of supernatural framework. And one of Scott's kind of criticisms of Gothic novels, like those by Anne Radcliffe, is that he's kind of dissatisfied when at the end of these novels that could, you know, that have these kind of potentially supernatural events that the writers, you know, go to great pains to explain the kind of rational, um, provide rational explanations for everything that happened. And Scott, in his criticism, kind of like explores what, why does this have to happen? And, you know, why can't we just leave it suspended? And so in some ways, he's kind of anticipating these theories of the fantastic or, or Freud's theory of the uncanny in his criticism by sort of saying fiction's the space where we can kind of create moments that can be explained both rationally and supernaturally. And rather than kind of resolve that tension, he leaves it often suspended. And I think what he's doing there is kind of creating spaces of connection between different ways of viewing the world that are, that for him have a kind of very specific historical or cultural foundation. And so, you know, in a lot of his texts, um, and so I talk about the two drovers, which is a great kind of short story that he wrote where it's a, it's a story about, um, cultural conflict or historical transformation and you know what he's doing with chance and improbability is kind of creating the space to kind of bring different worldviews in in into dialogue or into contact without necessarily kind of privileging or prioritizing one of the one over the other so you know that's sort of for me you know, a really interesting way of kind of thinking about chance is that it's he's using it as a kind of instrument or, or mechanism or even a kind of technology for producing certain kinds of effects in his novel and you know again we wouldn't in some ways want to associate that or, or or maybe we wouldn't you know implicitly kind of link those to questions of realism but for me the ways in which his novels try to get us to kind of you know experience the world through a certain worldview or to understand the kind of material foundations of a certain set of cultural beliefs or assumptions that to me is like what's most interesting about realism is that it's able to kind of put us in contact with these different ways of, of being in the world that kind of have a very, you know, grounded historical specificity. And, and for me, chance is, is one mechanism that Scott deploys to kind of make this happen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
I find your discussion of coincidence uh, in Dickens's Martin Chuzzlewit fascinating. Could you give us an insight into Dickens's use of coincidence in his novel? Yeah, so, I mean, Dickens is kind of like at the heart of the project, not only in the sense that it's the central, the, the middle chapter in the, in, the, in the book, but also in the sense that that's where the whole project started. It was just sort of trying to make sense of what, what's Dickens doing with coincidence. And it's one of those features of his text that, you know, anybody who's read Dickens or, or multiple Dickens novels knows that he's, you know, doing a lot of things where that he's kind of flouting our sense of the probable through coincidence. And, you know, all of his novels have a particular at the end, these kind of heavy handed moments where he's bringing characters back into contact. And so, you know, coincidences, there's a kind of long cr- critical tradition dating back to his contemporaries where people are kind of scoff at his use of coincidence or find it problematic or, immediately leap to the idea that he wants to sort of portray a providential world where everything's connected. And those kind of explanations always seemed a bit dissatisfying to me. And, and Chus- Martin Chuzzlewitz, um, by many, I think viewed as Dickens, one of Dickens's, you know, less artfully constructed novels. Um, and so there's a couple of things happening for me with this. One is thinking about how Dickens is dealing with, a kind of emerging um, confrontation with what it means to live in a kind of urban environment where, and I, you know, so it's the idea of a kind of market subjectivity where in a city you're on the one hand connected to everyone through, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of finance and the mechanisms of proximity and the mechanisms of transport that we, we live in a mass that's sort of undifferentiated, but there's also in the city, this grand sense of anonymity um, right where we we can walk around a large city and feel like we're not connected to everyone. And for me, that's sort of at the heart of questions of what Dickens is doing. And, and throughout his career, really, it's that he's kind of trying to think, you know, and there's iconic moments. If you've, you know, if you've read Bleak House, um, you know, there's that great moment where he sort of says, what connection can there be between Joe, the qu- crossing sweep and Lady Deadlock? And so thematically, his novels are often concerned with, getting characters to kind of overcome their limited understanding of their place in the world to realize their kind of interconnectedness in a way that's, you know, deeply sentimental in some ways for Dickens, but also I think at the heart of his kind of moral vision of, of, of 19th century Britain. Um, And so that's one sort of thread of the argument there is sort of what does it mean to sort of represent the city to represent connection in the city the other thread for me is Dickens's own kind of understanding of what he's doing with his novels, which is that, you know, he's, he's developing the serial form where he's writing kind of haphazardly, um, especially earlier in his career, you know, writing installment to installment, not quite knowing how the novels are going to play out. And then over the course of his career, or at least as the kind of dominant narrative goes, he becomes more preoccupied with the larger design of his novels um, where he's, you know, thinking, planning ahead and thinking about the kind of shape of his novels. And so coincidence kind of sits, interestingly for me, at the kind of center of those two questions, which is that, you know, on the one hand, we can see using Dickens using coincidence as a kind of mechanism for thinking about questions of interconnection, right, where he has characters bump into each other in the city and these kinds of connections weave characters together together. Um, into, you know, they, they cross 
disparate plot threads or they create moments of encounter, especially in a novel like Martin Chuzzlewit, which is concerned at, the, at its heart with selfishness. And so the novel is a kind of profound kind of reflection on and, and interrogation of the selfishness as a phenomenon. And for me in the novel, it's a selfishness is about a kind of myopic understanding of one's relationship to the world. And so coincidence, as I talk about, about it in the chapter, it's kind of a, a bursting of characters bubbles that they're, you know, they, they, they kind of bump around in, in their seemingly anonymous um, selves. And, and then they, and, but when they keep running into other characters that kind of challenges them to kind of overcome this myopic vision but we can also see coincidence as a just as like sort of a blunt plot plot mechanism, right? That bringing two characters together helps Dickens um, manage the kind of tension between the ster- serial installment and the shape of his novel. And Martin Chuzzlewit is often seen as a kind of a failed novel in the sense that, you know, when he finished the novel, he claimed in the preface that he had tried to keep his eye on on the larger design of the novel. And, and resist the pressure of the monthly number. And so it's often seen as a failed attempt at that, you know, several installments in uh, sales weren't great. And so Dickens decided to, he had just gotten back from America and he had written American notes and he had, you know, had gotten quite a bit of um, publicity and, and, and had some kind of success with talking about America. And so this novel that was supposed to be about Britain wasn't doing so well. And so he sent the main character off to America for a series of adventures that, you know, for most readers pulls the coherence of the novel apart. Um, and so it's not until his next novel, Dombey and Son, where a lot of critics, I think, see that um, larger purpose or the larger designs of Dickens's works kind of coming into focus. But, you know, so for me, you know, I coincidence in that novel is so upfront. It's so self-conscious. It's so he's doing something with it. And I think, you know, the story I try to tell in the chapter is that, Coincidence provides a mechanism by which we can kind of see Dickens's kind of moral purpose of his novels coming into focus, where he's confronting selfishness and trying to link it to the experience of the city and trying to link it to the question of the kind of market subjectivity that's coming into play. And also that can be linked to the question of how he designs and orchestrates a large cast of characters. So you know, the, the argument of the chapter is to, it's a kind of a, an attempt to recuperate Martin Chuzzlewit, which I'm certainly not going to argue it's the best Dickens novel, but it's one that I think is kind of underappreciated. And I think it's sort of at a pivotal moment in his career where he's on the one hand, you know, gaining the sense of himself as a reformer, as somebody who can leverage the novel form to kind of, you know, confront questions of, of the world he's living in and, and try and, you know, make some kind of moral plea to, to his contemporaries. And then also he's coming into his own being as somebody who's really embracing the large novel, the serial novel, and trying to figure out as a novelist, you know, what does it mean to um, write serial novels that have a kind of larger coherence? And so for me, it's, it's, it's kind of a improbability and coincidence if we just sort of move beyond saying it's a kind of problem or a flaw. We actually try and understand what it's doing in these texts. It's a really... I think important mechanism for Dickens that he does some really interesting things with, and that at least for Chuzzlewit and, and a lot of novels around that, it's really important to understanding both the shape and purpose of his works. Now, one of Dickens's contemporaries was Anthony Trollope. Uh, how is Trollope's use of chance similar or different from Dickens's? 
Yeah, so I think for both Dickens and Trollope, they're coming to grips with this question of like, how do we talk about the individual and talk about the social at the same time? And one of the things that happens over the course of the 19th century is that those kinds of realms, at least in in the space of statistics and probability theory, become distinct. And another way of saying that is that once we start taking a statistical view of society or the state, which is sort of the definition of statistics, um, there's a kind of distance from the individual. And in a quite literal kind of mathematical sense, by the end of the 19th century, there's the kind of recognition that when we're talking about statistical probabilities, we're not talking about, we're not, we can't predict individual instances. We're talking about the aggregate rather than individuals. And so in, in that sense, statistics is not predictive, right? It, it can't tell us what's going to happen in any individual instance. It can only tell, tell us, you know, what's happening in the aggregate or show us the order or the patterns that emerge in the aggregate. And so that's a kind of specific conceptual or philosophical problem. But in terms of the novel form, it's about how do we reconcile the view of the individual with the view of the social? And for Dickens, he's using coincidence and improbability and chance as a way of kind of bringing those two poles into, into contact, um, right, where the individual through a series of coincidental encounters kind of comes into a recognition of their place within the social and readers as a whole have the ability to kind of keep those poles in dialogue. For Trollope, I think he's also exploring these questions of scale um you know he's thinking about the individual and the the text i focus on is phineas finn uh which is a a novel about it's part of the palliser series and it's part of you know one of his parliamentary novels where phineas it's about phineas's career in parliament and that's a novel that's also concerned deeply with the social the novel is set against the kind of fictionalized backdrop of the lead up to the second reform bill so it's thinking about the direction of the social and the direction of the individual. And the difference for me is that Trollope is sort of coming to terms with the fact that those two things can't be kind of brought into contact or that we can't talk about them in the same way or that when we're talking about the social, we're not talking about the, indi- you know, it's, it's hard to talk about or imagine how the individual instance or the individual person fits into that broader picture. Um, so for me, Dickens is, you know, holding those two, poles of the individual and the social together through chance and through coincidence. Whereas I think for Trollope, it's about coming to terms with the fact that they're kind of operating according to different logics. And so, um, you know, for me, that's a really interesting kind of way for thinking about and and trying to understand what happens to the Bildungsroman um, in the late 19th century. And so Phineas Finn's I think kind of in some sense, a kind of classic Bildungsroman where Phineas enters the war world. He's trying to find a career. He's trying to find a place. Um, but the novel is kind of about his inability to do that. And, and chance for me is a kind of, it's another novel that is kind of obsessive about not only its use of chance, but the language of odds. Um, so Phineas is, he enters parliament and he has a series of kind of improbable victories. He kind of strings along a career but rather than being a kind of iterative or cumulative process that leads to a stable life, the language of chance kind of points to the ways in which um, the, the progress of the social can't be mapped directly on to the progress of the development of the individual, or rather it becomes difficult to see how an individual's development um, across their career can be 
correlate it to social progress. And so Parliament is the space in the novel where on the one hand, the novel is charting the direction of the country through a kind of liberal progress. It's also the space of Phineas's career where he's trying to kind of come to terms with, and, and so the novel begins with him rejecting, he's from Ireland and he rejects a kind of world of romance in Ireland and he kind of enters this chancy world of London. And so, you know, it's not, for me, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of novel because it sort of has all these sorts of divisions between Ireland and London, um, between the individual and the social, and between different ways of talking about probability. And so in Phineas's personal life and in his romantic life and in his career as he tries to enter and re-enter Parliament, we see the language of odds kind of be used pretty pretty consistently and pretty thoroughly in those moments where he's trying to rationalize his choices. So, you know, he'll say like, um, I have a one in 10 chance of winning this seat in parliament. And that's hearkening back to this older language of the kind of classical model of, of probability, which is about rational choice and it's about uncertainty and it's about trying to make that uncertainty fit within a kind of paradigm where rational decision-making can occur. On the other hand, there's the language of statistics that's used throughout the novel to characterize the, the state or the, or the social body. So Phineas, when he's in parliament, he reads these statistical reports and he kind of confronts these, this, this, this statistical conception of society at various moments. And so what the novel is doing, I think is like showing how these two things are incompatible, not only how these two ways of thinking about probability are incompatible on the one hand, reducing, trying to make a rational choice in a situation of uncertainty. And on the other hand, using the aggregation of data to kind of chart the direction of, of a social body, but then also showing how the individual and the social ways of thinking about them can't necessarily be reconciled on a kind of causal level that we can't think about how individual decisions might map on to say liberal progress. And so for me, that's a novel where, you know, the buildings Roman as a, as a kind of plot or as a, as a form is about, reconciling the individual and the social. And I think what Trollope's, you know, the, the language of chance and, and the prominence of improbability in Phineas Finn is a kind of recognition or a demonstration of the fact that those logics are, you know, the logic of the Bodensraman is kind of coming unraveled as a result in some ways of these kind of changing um, statistical notions of the, of the social and, and their kind of conflict with older ways of thinking about probability that focus on individual and rational choice. So I knew that chance is also an intriguing topic in Hardy's novels, particularly because it appears in relation to determinism. What happens in Hardy's novels when it comes to chance? Yeah, so Hardy's, you know, another writer, I think if you sort of said, you know, who, who uses chance a lot, Hardy would probably be the writer, at least in the 19th century, that, you know, a lot of... Um, people would sort of intuitively sort of say, yes, he's a novel novelist that relies a lot on chance. And it, within kind of broader discourse around chance in the novel, he's often seen as, you know, a kind of harbinger of, of 20th century ideas of chance. And so one way of telling, you know, one way that people have kind of talked about chance in the 19th century novel is that, you know, it's a sign of providence um, in, in for most writers. And then you get to Hardy and he's kind of rejecting that worldview and, and kind of um, trying to, you know, but then at the same time, 
a, a lot of people highlight the ways in which Hardy's novels seem fatalistic, that, that, you know, characters are kind of fated or determined to kind of have a kind of, you know, these pessimistic. And, and, and so, um, you know, so in some ways, a lot of people, the inclination is maybe to start the narrative about, um, you know, the use of chance in the, in the, in the British novel with Hardy, or, or at least he's maybe the first one who has a kind of more modern or anticipates 20th century developments. And so part of what I want to do in the book is to kind of tell the longer story of that beginning with Austin. And so I think that kind of sets the stage for a different way of thinking about, um, chance and Hardy. And so one of the things I do, throughout the novel or throughout the book. And one of the things that I think is kind of like the larger stakes of the book is to kind of think about narrative causality and causality and realism. And so, you know, chance can be seen as a problem in terms of causality because it's not, you know, it's an event without a cause. And so, um, and so that's often seen as a, as a problem or something that needs to kind of be explained away. But for me, you know, and I do this quite a bit in the Scott chapters to think about how chance through the absence of cause provides a way of kind of highlighting more diffuse or more complex or more indirect causal networks or causal kind of paradigms that are at, at play. And so one of the things realist novels do is they give us rich pictures of the social worlds that, that are being represented. You know, that's true of kind of, of all 19th century realism. And so one of the so one of the kind of things I try to do in the book is to kind of highlight the ways in which those that kind of more complex understanding of causality chance is actually a kind of benefit in that in, in that space because it sort of doesn't assign or doesn't represent an explicit cause um, to an event, but rather helps us see the kind of more diffuse c- causes that are at play. And so for me, Hardy's a novelist who's not, I mean, yes, he has a kind of pessimistic worldview and, you know, you can think about the kind of philosophical influences not limited to, and certainly not beginning with, but certainly involving Darwin and, you know, kind of reckoning with Darwinian ideas of evolutionary theory and the kind of impact that has on late 19th century thought. I mean, and, and, you know, and I think that's a kind of good framework for approaching Hardy in the first instance, but he's also a novelist who's, you know, writing really rich portraits of these complex social milieus that have a kind of firm grip on characters lives and their agency and they're you know they're shaped by very discrete social and economic forces and so one of the ways i like to think about chance and hardy is that you know he uses it to show and to bring these other these other forces that are that the characters can't see themselves but that readers can see into view so that we can see that characters aren't shaped by you know, their, their lives and their fates aren't shaped by this kind of abstract determinism, but rather by concrete material social forces that um, they can't see beyond. And so part of what I try to do in the chapter is to highlight, so it kind of focuses on a, a novel, The Return of the Native, which is for me probably the most chance-filled plot. And so if you kind of do a plot summary of the novel. It's just this string of kind of random and coincidental and chancy events. And so kind of one way of thinking about chance would be to say, well, you know, that this, there's a kind of determinism in the chanciness. But for me, that level of plot summary is not really coming to terms with what the novel is doing, which is showing us how these characters are bound to these, these worlds and that um, any kind of 
Yeah. So, you know, he's kind of embracing that kind of contingent perspective, but also trying to give us a sense of the kind of, you know, a historicized picture of the, of the worlds he's representing. And so, um, yeah, so I think, you know, it's again, kind of another attempt to kind of recuperate coincidence or chance and say, it's not, you know, and again, beginning with Hardy's contemporaries and especially the modernists that followed him, there's a lot of kind of, uncomfortableness and even disdain for Hardy's plots. Um, you know, Ian Forrester talks about it as a machine um, and Wolf kind of Virginia Wolf in a, in an essay on the occasion of Hardy's death, you know, well, you know, praises him, but also kind of complains a bit about how he, how he uses these kind of mechanistic plots or, or plots that kind of eat up his characters. And I, you know, certainly think that's a kind of one way of reading Hardy, but I also think that, you know, once you sort of abandon the idea or move away from the idea that chance is a problem or chance is a failure for realism and start to think about what it's actually doing in terms of guiding us through a, a narrative world that's drawn in this kind of rich and robust way provides an occasion for kind of highlighting certain aspects of that social world. And I think very much that Hardy's novels are ones that are, you know, coming to grips with these like changing ideas of, of, a universe that you know might be um, chancier or more indeterminate than than we than we thought, but then also still trying to come to grips with you know how do we kind of bring a kind of logic or coherence or understand the forces that are actually shaping characters' lives. Um, so it's yeah, it's a kind of rejection of the abstract in some ways, and a, a kind of to draw attention to the kind of concrete and the material and Hardy. So then what would be some of the larger significances of seeing chance and improbability as central to 19th century realist novels? Yeah, I think for me, you know, one of the things that the 19th century realist novel does is that it grapples with this question of scale, that it's, you know, on the one hand, beginning with Austin, trying to represent a rich picture of subjective life or of interiority or of human psychology. And then on the other hand, it's, you know, always has one eye towards the social, which again, gets increasingly large and complex and and difficult to reconcile with the individual. And so for me, you know, realism is about that tension and about navigating that tension, which can't always be done or, or, you know, can't be done. Um, And so probability is a way of, balancing or bringing into dialogue or bringing into contact the different scales of experience or the different scales of our our worlds, which are both individual and interior, but also, you know, social and broad and and, and totalizing in some senses. And so part of what I want to do in the novel is to kind of, you know, both kind of defend realism as a kind of flawed, but really important way of mode of literary representation that, you know, that, that, that it can kind of capture elements of historical existence and that, um, you know, highlighting that's really important. And that for me, improbability is kind of one space where the realist novel kind of tries to do this work of, of bringing into contact or bringing into dialogue different perspectives on the world in ways that may not be compatible or commensurate, but are nevertheless, you know, can be, can be juxtaposed or, 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 um, brought together. Well, Adam, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I want to end our interview by asking what you are working on now. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm doing a have a couple projects going. One of them is actually focused on Dickens and his compositional process. So, 
with Anna Gibson. Um, he's at NC State. We're launching a project called the Digital Dickens Notes Project, which is based upon his working notes for his novels, which he started to keep with Dombey and Son in 1940, 1848, which is the first novel. And so these are she- single sheets of paper for each serial installment. And on these um, sheets, which are called his working notes, he kind of jots down plans, makes blueprints, questions, character combinations, um, and kind of maps out the serial installment. And he uses these in increasingly complex and fascinating ways over the course of his career. And so the project's designed or aimed to be an online platform where we'll not only present transcriptions of the working notes, but also editorial uh, scholarly annotations and, and editorial introductions that help uh, readers and users to think about their relationship to the text themselves. And so, you know, the the working notes have typically been, been seen as a kind of um, kind of blueprints for numbers or plans, but he's also, Dickens is also using these in, in kind of really random and really fascinating ways where he's returning to the working notes after he's finished a number to make records of what he's done. And so really the, the platform's designed to provide Oh, a new way of thinking about Dickens's compositional process or, or new insights into how we might read that process as something that's kind of temporally elongated or, or temporally uncertain. Um, so that's something that we'll be launching later this year, uh, dickensnotes.com, where we'll have uh, transcriptions and annotations beginning with David Copperfield and Bleak House, and then in, in subsequent iterations of the website adding to that. So that's one project that I'm really excited about. And then more broadly, I've just been kind of keeping, continuing thinking about these questions of scale in the novel, but doing so in the context more of contemporary questions around climate change. Um, And so I'm kind of broadly working about, thinking about and working on, you know, trying to sort of think about how the novel, both the 19th century novel and the contemporary novel um, are both kind of yeah, it can help us think at the scale of some of the questions that the climate crisis presents. Um, so um, thinking more interdisciplinary and also more kind of globally about the 19th century novel and ways of using the 19th century novel, maybe to kind of think through problems of the Anthropocene. Um, so that's kind of a more amorphous but ambitious project that I've been really working on, um, you know, more recently. Wonderful. I really look forward to seeing more of your work. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, Take care. And uh, we're going to say bye for now. Thank you.